love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. I'm Haley Chura, and I'm joined here on this uh, special edition. I mean, it isn't necessarily a special edition. It's coming on our regular Thursday, but special edition because my co-host, Alyssa Gadeski, is, you know her and love her as a professional triathlete and owner of several fastest known times on trails around, around the Eastern U.S., but this week, she's adding a new feather in her cap. Alyssa, how are you doing? And what are you preparing for? Haley, I am like pooping in my pants. I'm so nervous right now. <laughs> and I still have like five days to wait. So this is going to be a long four, for how many days? Four days or so at least. Um, I am preparing for the Barkley Marathons. Uh, I if you've been listening for the last couple months, uh, I talked about this a little bit. <clears throat> I have been trying to get into the race since 2019, I think was the first year I tried to get in. And for people, I'll stop right here. For people who don't know what the Barkley Marathons is, you should stop right now and go to YouTube and find the net, well, I guess it's not a Netflix documentary because I'm sending you to YouTube, but it's a documentary called the Barkley Marathons, the race that eats its young on YouTube now. It's not on Netflix anymore. Um, but it is a great, great documentary and it will shed some light onto this crazy race that I am partaking in this year. Um, but so yes, I've been trying to get into the race and for several years and my name was finally called off the wait list this year, Haley. So I kind of gambled Well, I've been gambling for a lot of these years when I've been on the wait list thinking, it could be my year, but then, you know, eventually I'd be like, eh, I'm not going to get off and I'd pivot to something else. Um, but this year I just had a feeling that it could be my year. And so I kind of put all my chips in to the training for, uh, Barkley and even the, well before I knew I was definitely going to get in. And I'm really glad that I did that because the training went really well. And I, so let's see, the race is in like four days, five days now. And I found out 10 days ago that I was in, I think. So um, not a lot. Like if if I had found out 10 days ago that I was in and I hadn't really thought that I was going to be in, I'd be in a world of trouble right now. But luckily I have been kind of prepping for this for a while now. And so I, you know, I feel a little bit more prepared than I would have otherwise. So but I'm very nervous. Definitely, definitely anxious. Right. And if we don't have listeners, you haven't seen the documentary, haven't been listening the last couple of weeks. This is a very exclusive race happening in Tennessee. And it is five loops of 20-ish uh, miles, 20 to 25 miles off, like lots of it off trail and lots of vert up and down, you know, up and down climbing navigation. We know that you've been doing a lot of navigation races over the past couple of years. So this definitely seems like it's been a multi-year process for you. So I'm so excited that you finally, finally get to, you know, throw your license plate in the ring. Um, that is, you have to bring a license plate, right? 
Yes, yes. So the farmer on the farm where I live, like rent a home, he pulled this license plate. He, I was like, you know, do you have, I, I'm, we live in a farm. There's like stuff everywhere, right? It's like just a farm. And so I was like, surely like on some of these, like he's got extra license plates lying around. And cause I haven't lived in New Hampshire long enough to like have a spare license plate. Right. And so I, he was like, oh, I don't know if I have a license plate. So I was like, oh no. And then a couple days later, he was like, I got one for you. And he pulled one off this 1982 truck. Um, that was just like sitting in a field basically somewhere. And it's, um, it has my initials. So it's like five, eight, five AG. No way. And I was like, oh my God, this is like so meant to be right. So I feel like that's a sign. So, um, I'm excited to be bringing that license plate. Down. What's the other piece of entry? Cause I know it's like, I mean, it's a very nominal fee and then don't you have to bring a piece of clothing or something for the race director? So the, if you're a virgin to the race, you bring the license plate. If you're a veteran, you bring like the item, right? And so in previous years, it's been like the type of cigarettes that the race director Laz um, smokes or like his uh, shirt that he wears or like the certain kind of Coke that he likes to drink. And this year it's, um, he called, this is actually a pretty funny story. He called it adventure socks is what he wanted. Right. And so like, when I saw him write that, I was like, oh, like he wants socks for his adventures, right? Like, so you'd get socks that like you think like an older man would wear for his adventures because Laz still walks like these crazy adventures. Like two years ago, he walked across the country. And this year he actually walked from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico. And so he, I mean, he's doing, you know, these adventures. And so, but like people got really thrown off, Haley, about like what adventure socks were. And people were like Googling adventure socks and being like, Laz, I'm only coming up with like short socks and I don't think you're a short socks. And he's like, I do not want short socks. And he's like, adventure socks, like socks. For my... So the fact that I feel like I knew what he meant, I was like, okay, maybe him and I are actually on the same wavelength and uh, this experience could go well. Okay. So we're record- we are recording this a little bit early. So you are going to head down, back down to Tennessee. You were there a few weeks ago checking out the course, what you could see of the course that's allowed pre-race. And so you're going to head down there. Can you give us like a timeline? I'm hopefully by the time this, this airs, you will be wrapping up the race or be done with the race. So what is, what are these pre-race days? Like, are you just packing like crazy and, um, you know, checking the weather? Yeah, I've been checking the weather for a few days now. So Today is Thursday and the race start is usually it's kept quite quiet, but since this is coming out afterwards, um, I can definitely tell you. So the race starts on Tuesday, March 8th, I think March 8th. So, and the race will start sometime between midnight on the 8th and noon. Um, you're given a one hour warning when the race start will be, and that will be the start time. So, um, these next few days I am making the trek back to Tennessee. It's like a 16 or 17 hour drive. So Matt is able to come with me this time though. And we're stopping at a couple friends' houses along the way to help break up that drive. So it's not just like a really long drive. Um, and we'll get to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, just outside of the like area where frozen head state park is where the race is on Sunday. And so, I'll stay in a hotel on Sunday night, get one last good night of sleep. And then on Monday, we move to the campground where the race is. Um, It kind of shuts down the whole state park basically for this race. And they try and keep anyone not associated with the race out. So we can go in though and get a campsite and camp for for Monday. Um, And this has been, you know, so pretty much now I hope all my packing is just about done because we're leaving tomorrow. Um, but it has been 
a lot of packing, Haley. And so I've actually realized in these last few days, it's felt more like prepping myself for like one of my FKTs. That's like a multi-day thing versus just like going to a race. Um, And I think that's because the race time limit is 60 hours. So two and a half days, which is kind of like, you know, the time I could be out for an FKT type of thing. And so there is just a lot more that goes into prepping for multi-day stuff and like thinking through all that and the clothes and the gear and, you know, this time of year in March in Frozen Head, um, it's going to be in the 30s in the night and it's going to be in like the 60s probably in the day. So we have a really big temperature swing. There's a lot to prepare for. Um, camping comes with its own, <laughs> you know, bag of tricks of things you need to be bringing and things like that. And of course, driving there, it's like, well, we should just bring everything so we don't forget anything, right? So um, a lot is getting getting packed right now and a lot of lists, a lot of like bags. I'm separating, um, you know, clothes into loop one, loop two, loop three, loop four, loop five type of thing. I'm separating all my nutrition into that same thing and trying to make it as easy as I can for Matt, who will be my crew, so that when he is there and I'm coming in, you know, we don't have to waste a lot of time in between loops and what they call the interloopal period because uh, I don't think I'm going to have a lot of time to waste. I don't want to, I don't want to spend my minutes there. Are you planning to change clothes completely in between loops? So I'm going to, I'm planning to change in between two and three and four and five. So I'll, I'll wear the same stuff for two loops at a time. I feel like that is not wasting time, but you know, gives me a fresh change, right? Probably every day or so, which I think will be nice to feel. Um, there was one guy who is like now a three-time finisher, Haley, and there's like this one year where he actually took showers because wow. <laughs> you you kind of come through the loops and there's like a shower right there. And so he was, you know, within the grace period of time enough and he had the time to take showers. So he actually was taking showers. I was like, man, that would be quite a nice luxury if somehow I banked time for that. But um, But I am planning, I have, you know, different outfits, for that. Um, but so hopefully not changing too much, but I think a fresh change of clothes now and then will be nice. I've watched the race and I know that there are a lot of briars. Are you planning to wear pants or shorts? So I'm going to probably start in, uh, like capris. Um, and so my bottom half of my legs will be exposed. I have shin guards that like I wear for some of the orienteering stuff I do. And those help a ton, but they're also really hot and just like one more thing to wear. And if it's going to be in the 60s coming from New Hampshire, that's going to feel really hot to me anyway. So I'm just going to deal with it and get the briar scratches and hope for the best. I mean, I've definitely had plenty of them before and they go away um, after like a couple of weeks. It just looks really bad for a week. <laughs> what What is your nutrition plan like? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of calories, but is there anything unexpected that, you know, is different than what you would do in an Ironman or uh, even an FKT, I imagine. Cause like, I remember your FKTs where you like have a stove set up with like pierogies, but you might not even have time for that. And that's hard to like, for Matt to know when you're coming in. Cause you also don't have any like GPS devices or phones out there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, it's pretty similar, like, uh, on trail, I'll be doing a lot of what I did, for both the long trail and for the Adirondack FKTs where 
I'm getting electrolytes from noon hydration um, as my main like hydration source and then calories from mostly like spring nutrition gels. Um, those work really well for me. And then also F2C Nutrition has a product called Endurance 5 to 1 that I use. Um, so those are like my main staples. And then um, in between loops, you know, and then I also have some fun things like candy and Snickers I'll throw in my pack too. But those are kind of like bonus calories. And then in between loops, you know, we have a lot of food options. And so the the interesting thing with this race is if the race does start more towards midnight, right, then I'm finishing loop one in like late morning time, you know, um, whereas if the race starts more towards the middle of the day, I'm finishing loop one kind of in the evening, you know? And so that definitely kind of changes. Like, you know, if it's the middle of the day, I'm probably not going to want like hot soup as much. Um, so maybe I'll want more of like a quesadilla or like a lunch type of snack, you know? And if it's like 60 degrees, I probably really won't want anything too, too hot. But if I am coming in more in the evening time and it's a little cooler, the sun's down, you know, SpaghettiOs I have to have prepared ready. Those can go into a jet boil and get heated up really fast. Um, ramen and what else do I have? Well, there's a Taco Bell in town. <laughs> so Matt can always make a Taco Bell run and get a couple cheese quesadillas and have those on tap too. So um, I feel like he's just going to do a great job as he always does crewing of like having options for me and then... I kind of don't want too many options because like what's there is going to be my choices, right? So I'll just pick between that and then and then have something. But I, I do want to eat something more like meal substantial in that between loop period. And do you know who else is racing? Like, is there a list that uh, is like who is officially in who's going to show up? Or is it just like you show up and you see who's there? For the most part, you show up and you see who's there. Um it's, there's a Facebook group. So once you're like accepted, you're in this Facebook group. And so you can obviously see the other people in the Facebook group, but there's like well more people in the group than there are spots in the race. So that includes waitlisters. It includes the runners. It includes staff. It includes, I think just prior year runners who are close to the race. So you don't, he never puts out even to us, um, an official list of who's running. So I don't know. Um, and I've tried to even ask like a couple times and, you know, people are very tight lipped, uh, around if they know who's running and things like that. So you can definitely see some things like I know, um, there's a couple women from like Australia and New Zealand, I believe who have, you know, announced that they are running and coming. Um, but I don't know, really beyond that, like one of a friend of mine from Charlottesville, he is running. So him and I have talked about it a bit, but, um, other than that, it's pretty, it's crazy how tight lipped people actually are, um, about it. I feel like I've been one of the more vocal people that I will be there. So you don't have a planned alliance yet, but is that going to be what you're like scoping out before? Like, who am I going to start with? Who am I going to try to stick with? Because obviously if you know someone who's a good navigator, there's a big advantage to running with them and hopefully finding those books a little bit faster. Yeah. And I mean, even just beyond the navigation, it's someone who's been to the course before enough that like when we get to the right spot, they know this is that tree that Laz is talking about with the funny looking tree trunk that has the book in it, you know? And so those things I do think stay the same year to year. And so it will be really nice if I can align myself with a veteran um, who knows those tidbits. But, you know, I've talked to people on all sides of it who say, you definitely need to align with a veteran or you're fine either way. You know, sometimes 
group mentality can be a bad thing in this race. And, you know, you, you have to be, I think, confident with your own navigation skills and your own abilities to go alone. And I am ready to have to do that. Um, if it works out that I can make a friend and we work together as a team really well, then that would be obviously ideal, but I'm not going to let that hope like make or break my race. I don't think. And so what about the map situation? Cause I kind of remember from watching the documentary that like you, you get the maps, like, uh, maybe the day before you get to see the map or like see the course map. Cause the course changes every year. Right. And so when will you get to see the course? And then I, do you have to, is it like a master map and then you copy it onto your own map? Yeah. So, uh, the race, you know, is on Tuesday. So on Monday at some point he will basically say people can come check in. <laughs> And so I think at that point you go and like check in, get your first bib number, you like get the, I think just he checks that you have your waiver, you have to do like whatever. And so, and then I think after everyone checks in, I think he says like, okay, the map is out. And then yes, there's one master map that he's made. I think he gives everyone written instructions that like kind of walk you through the course as as like a storybook almost, right? Um, And you then, yeah, you have to go with your own map and copy from the master map the course. So that's like the extent that I know. Um, You know, I've tried to confirm with people that like we should all be buying the map that's available at the park office or can I make my, like have my own made and bring those if I like to like have certain things on my maps. And it's funny, everyone again that I've asked who's run it before, literally like five or six people have had five or six different answers about the maps that you can have there, which is interesting. Um, and so one of the things about the Barkley is they say is like the truth is malleable, right? And so I really believe that everyone is giving me their version of the truth in some way, right? But And they're all true, and yet maybe none of them might be true. So it's like, it's definitely a mind game and one that you just can't let yourself get too frustrated. And luckily, I love to prepare. <laughs> and I love logistical planning and things like that. It's just... It is, I will say, like a little taxing to have to prepare for every possible scenario, but I think that's what this game is all about. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm also thinking, like, if you just go into a park office, are they going to have 40 maps? Like, what if they didn't? Or what if you like sabotaged everyone else and you bought them all? Yeah, (laughs) I probably wouldn't be invited back to the park, or I'd be everyone's best friend. So yeah. And then you resold them for more. You're just like, I got to make some money. I drove 16 hours. <laughs> there's, there's no prize money here. Um, so how do you, how do you, how do you feel about the night before? Do you think you're going to be sleeping? Like, I know this is, I mean, when you, there's a 12 hour window when the race could start. So do you have a plan? Are you going to try to go to bed really early or are you just going to like lay there? Um, I'm hoping I can fall like kind of in and out of sleep around my normal time, like nine 30 or 10. Right. But it's going to be camping. It's going to be, you're like in a campground, doubled up, tripled up in these campsites because so everyone can fit, you know? So there's going to be like a lot of hustle and bustle. I guess Laz is known to do a few like fake conch shell blasts as he's like quote practicing for the real one. Right. So um, I think there will be a lot going on. I have earplugs, <laughs> I have an eye mask and Matt will be on like duty to find the real, the real one. But, um, 
I I think I'll get to sleep some, but probably not a lot. So in some ways I'm hoping for like an early start, but I'm also hoping to not have to spend too much time in the dark initially. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. I think it's just, it'll be what it is and I'll just have to hope that I'm feeling rested enough. Oh, well, okay. How, how can we follow? I know that I think Twitter is usually where I, where I see, I mean, wait, by the time, <laughs> by the time this airs, it might be over, but, um, okay. If, if this is airing and people want to like check and see how you've done. Um, is there any way to know? Yeah. So I think, uh, the, on Twitter, the hashtag BM 100. So Barkley marathon, 100 BM 100, um, follow that hashtag. There's a guy named Keith Dunn and he will be tweeting. He tweets basically when the race starts and then as someone comes through loop each loop, and then I think departs on each loop and then, if they drop, he'll tweet about them. So some updates are given. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if this is coming out Thursday morning, hopefully I'm still out there in some shape or form and uh, finishing up either, I guess, with timing, I could be finishing loop four or loop five, depending on things. But um, yeah, so head to Twitter and check it out and and we can all see how I did. Yeah, and um, and I'm sure, okay, even if you finish and you're very tired and you're very famous, are you going to come back and tell your story next week for us? Of course. I feel like Iron Women Podcast has like exclusive rights to my first podcast interview. So get prepared for that duty, Haley. Oh, good. Oh, good. Because, because okay, we have to say this is like, this is just our pre-race teaser because we actually have like an interview this week. But, um, but I'm excited about this and I'm glad we have that like recorded. <laughs> you have to come back <laughs> for when I'm so famous. Are you, yeah, are you, so. is there any part of the course that you're like most excited about? Are you excited to go through that tunnel under the prison? That looks scary. It does look scary. Um, it looks really wet too. Um, I think I am excited to climb rat jaw. Like, I think that'll be fun. You know, it's like such a novelty and, um, I think it'll be cool to do. I think, uh, there's definitely parts of the course I'm not excited to have to see, but, um, you know, mostly I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm glad I went down there a couple weeks ago because mentally I'm just wrapping my head around being out there for the whole time and parts will be bad and parts will be fun. Oh man. Well, I'm going to be like crossing my fingers for dry conditions for you that, you know, maybe a little bit on the chillier side, because it seems like that might um, favor you a little bit and then clear and great navigation conditions. And I wish you, you know, best navigational luck. Because I know, I know you have the physical fitness and I know you have the ability to, to suffer and the ability to keep yourself awake and keep yourself going. And we just got to make sure that those books are where he said he they were. <laughs> I know. In all of the time I've studied this race, I actually have not, I have heard of maybe one time where the book wasn't in the right place. So it can happen, but I think you can't go in there with that concept, right? Cause then you'll be like, oh, it's definitely in the wrong place for this one. So, um, so yeah, but thanks Haley. I'm excited to give you the lowdown next week. Um, one thing I am packing actually that I, we should tell our listeners about is in each of my 
loop bags is a that's it fruit bar Haley oh. um because typically like I like fruit snacks when I'm running I like candies or gummies so that is like a little sweet treat for me to kind of mix up the other stuff um and you guys that's it fruit extended their sponsorship of the iron women podcast for the next month so great news it didn't end at the start of March like we thought we you can continue to get 20% off of your that's it fruit orders at that's it fruit.com and code iron women and i think you can go to that's it fruit.com forward slash iron women too but definitely use the code iron women um get some fruit bars get some mini fruit bars get some crunchables and stock up yeah and you can be, month. be just like Alyssa. and that is great thank you to all of our listeners who who supported us that way and hopefully you're enjoying your fruit bars and you're fueling your long adventures whatever adventure means to you <laughs> adventure fruit adventure fruit bars um adventure <laughs> socks well Alyssa, okay i'm excited i'm excited for you thank you for telling us about all of your prep and um i'm going to be cross my fingers again and wishing you safe travels down to tennessee and everything and i'll be anxiously watching twitter and i can't wait to hear all about it next week Thanks, Haley. And like you said, we do have a really fun interview for everyone. So sit tight because we are talking to Allie Brower next. Um, I was really excited to talk to Allie because she is part of a squad called the JP Elite uh, within the Nor'easter like training squad. And as you can imagine, with a squad called Nor'easter, they are actually based out of New Hampshire. So I was excited to talk to Allie to learn more about how that squad works. Um, it's a like, what, what, what was the term she used actually to call it? The daily training program. Yes. Daily training environment. So environment. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a unique squad in that it's a daily training environment. People are there all in for the training and the work that goes into that. So she tells us all about that. We had a lot of questions. Um, she also tells us about kind of some of the struggles she's had over the last few years, with reds, with injury. Um, and then she also tells us about the successes, like her second place at the New York City Triathlon, third at Ironman Memphis last year, and third at Ironman 70.3 Indian Wells La Quinta. So we talked to Allie about all of these things, plus a lot more of her background. So you can hear from her next. Hi, Allie. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I think you're down in sunny Claremont, Florida right now for some training. And our listeners love hearing about workouts. So can you tell us how training's going? Um, where in the preseason build are you? Like what kind of stuff are you doing right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so my last race was Indian Wells in December. Um, and after that, I took basically two weeks completely off and then two flex weeks where um, I had flexibility to do basically whatever I wanted, um, not too high volume training. So Really, the last month since I've been down here um, has been my first time back in pretty consistent high-volume training since last year. Um, so the fatigue is high. Um, I'm not doing a ton of intensity yet um, since races are still kind of far out for me. Um, I'm not planning to race until May, most likely. Um, so I haven't been doing anything too, too crazy, really just building my base back up after a lot of racing last year where my training volume was, you know, pretty up and down. Um, so yeah, right now the goal is mainly just to get back that consistency. Can you, what's the thought process on not racing until May? Was that related to anything that happened or was it just you wanted a long build? 
Yeah, um, I personally just felt like I needed a long build, like you said, because last year I raced six times, or um, I guess 670.3s in one Olympic distance, um, and that's the most I've ever raced in my life. Um, And I'm still, this was my first year racing 70.3, so I'm just not really used to the distance. Like, I don't have the durability to bounce back super quickly, so every time I raced a 70.3, It's like I had to take a basically a full recovery week. I wouldn't run for a few days just out of precaution because I have a running injury history. Um, So my training volume was just pretty inconsistent. um, And I kind of felt like I was stringing together a lot of weeks where I wasn't necessarily building fitness. I was just kind of maintaining it through all the races. And so I felt like it would really benefit me later this year um, to kind of slow down and take more of a long-term approach rather than jump back into racing right away. Alyssa, I have a fun story for you. I have been anxiously tracking a FedEx package that I knew included snacks. And this is my favorite kind of package. And I was tracking and I was tracking and I saw the FedEx truck and I heard the dog bark and I went to go get the package and there was nothing there. And I've never been so devastated because I knew I was getting a package from that's it fruit. I knew that these were snack bars and I was so hungry and I had no idea. And so I actually, um, I did a little sneaking around. It was like dusk and I went out and I looked around at all my neighbors doorsteps. I felt like a citizen detective. I felt a little sketchy and I didn't find it. I had no idea. I didn't find it. So the next day I was like dejected. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I went for a run and I came back and a box was sitting on my driveway, just sitting there. And I I was like, back. You had the right address and everything. And I don't know what happened, but I ravenously, like I was going to, I should have filmed something for Instagram or social media, but I just cut it open and I immediately ate a, that's it, blueberry and apple fruit bar. And I felt like all was better in the world. I mean, I have, my package was actually delivered with perfect timing. I didn't have to do any citizen detective work to get it. And I was enjoying the, um, what are they? The the granola like snackable snackables is that what they're called crunchables crunchables i knew it was i keep calling them snack but crunchables was like a really good road trip snack actually as i'm in tennessee right now i was able to enjoy that in the car and i have been eating the that's it fruit bars on the trails because i love having i often carry gummy candy or something like that but the fruit bars are actually like perfect to just throw in my pack and enjoy and takes it's like a, it's like a it really is like an adult fruit roll Kaylee and there's nothing more than I, I like more than that kind of like sweet tooth satisfying and now I can feel good about it when I'm satisfying my sweet tooth because that's if fruit bars are super healthy they are made from literally just fruit so you can't get much better than that. It is perfect ride snack, perfect run snack, perfect um, just when you're hungry from looking for packages snack. And if any of our listeners want to try That's It Fruit bars or the Crunchables on for themselves, they can hit to that'sitfruit.com forward slash ironwomen and they use the code ironwomen and they'll get 20% off their first order. Definitely check it out. And hopefully, you know, your delivery people are a little bit better than mine, but if they aren't, you know, someone is going to get those bars to you. (laughs) We have to, you know, we're dealing with everything we have these days, but it's worth the wait. 
And so as you're doing these early season build workouts, knowing you have a long time until race day, do you have a favorite workout that you know that you're like, get, as you're building, do you, do you have anything that you prefer any certain session while you're in Claremont that you really enjoy? Mm-hmm. Um, so Claremont's the only place in Florida with hills. Um, a lot of people probably know this. Um, Sugarloaf is the famous climb down here. Um, I mean, compared to hills in New Hampshire, Pacific Northwest, where I'm from originally, it's it's nothing. But for here, it's like a huge hill. Um, and it's a couple minutes long and maxes out at, I think, about 13% grade. Um, so you can do pretty intense hill rep sessions. Um, and I think our first or second week down here, we as a squad all went out there and did 10 times Sugarloaf, um, building power throughout. So that was a pretty fun session. And in general, hill reps are one of my favorite workouts. Um, I love climbing. So always enjoyable. And Ali, we want to get into kind of dig into more of that current racing you were talking about, but I do want to rewind the clock a little bit to ask about your background. So I read that you had a parent, I think, who was an elite runner that you swam and ran growing up. You even did steeplechase at some point. So were you a super athletic kid who always had their sights on elite sport? Um, yeah, so my dad was um, an elite runner back in the day. He ran at University of Oregon. Um, he was very successful. Um, he was a steeple chaser, um, placed top eight at back then it was Pac 10s, now it's Pac 12, um, and also had a pretty decent 5K. Um, so that's where the running genes come from. And then my mom um, was always a swimmer. Um, so I guess I picked up both of those activities. Um, but as a kid, just growing up in Oregon, it's a super active place. Like being active is just the way of life. Um, so I did a lot of different activities like soccer, um, basketball, cross country skiing. I did some indoor rock climbing. Um, yeah, I just in general enjoyed being outside and being active. Um, I wouldn't say that I ever really had aspirations of being an elite athlete or being a professional athlete. Um, I mean, if I think about how I was feeling as a kid doing all those sports, it was just for fun. Um, there wasn't a lot of pressure. Um, and I actually got into organized track and cross country when I was 10. And then I've been swimming competitively since I was six. Um, so I do have a pretty long history with organized competitive sport, but still was never the kid who like had dreams of be becoming an Olympian or a professional athlete. And I I believe you, you said you swam and ran in college. Mm -hmm. That's, I know we talked to Taylor Nib earlier and she did something similar. Did you, uh, you know, you know, did, were you thinking triathlon or was that just because your parents swam and ran? So you're like, these are, you know, the two sports I've grown up watching people do. Yeah, I think it was more the latter. Um, I, I mean, I rode my bike around town as a kid. I just had a cheap mountain bike, but I, neither of my parents are into cycling and I, I was never exposed to bikes as a kid. Um, so the, the first time I touched a bike, honestly, was when I was, or a, proper road bike, I should say, was when I was 23 and decided to do triathlon. Um, but yeah, I swam and ran competitively all through high school and then college. Um, 
I had no thoughts of doing triathlon at all until I was in grad school. And so doing both those sports in college, I mean, that's hard. And you're mm-hmm. also going to school. And I know, I don't think Taylor even did it all. F- did you do it all four years? Um, so I didn't swim my final year, but I did all three, three out of the four years. Okay. How is that balance? Like, are you just someone who doesn't need balance? You're like, oh, whatever, I can do it all. <laughs> um, it was a lot. Um, in hindsight, I probably didn't, you know, give myself enough breaks from anything and this may be something that we touch on later in the podcast but I do think it contributed to some burnout um yeah it it was a lot especially because I was at a division three school where academics are prioritized um so really I'd say in college I was more 90% student 10% athlete and athletics was more of my release um I had a double major in math and physics that was pretty intensive um and I think because so much focus was on academics during that time I definitely didn't meet my potential in any of my sports like sports were kind of on the back burner and academics was the priority um so yeah it was a lot to juggle but I'd say the balance was more tipped in favor of academics as a math major myself I'm like oh my gosh dying inside that the the last thing I would have ever thought to do would be to add a physics <laughs> double major into that equation I don't think plus like yeah actual competitive sports you know I did like club sports and stuff but I cannot imagine that that definitely would have been a lot and mm-hmm. So you, when you moved for your like post um, undergrad work, you were, you moved to a triathlon hotspot, Boulder, Colorado to pursue your PhD program in mechanical engineering, I think. Right. So this like, and you kind of mentioned, this was how you found triathlon. Was it a friend who said like, Hey, you do running and swimming really well. Let's try riding and do a triathlon. Or was it just like being in Boulder and you saw triathlon happening? What was kind of the instigator there? Um, So there was actually an additional step before I got to Boulder. Um, So I went straight from undergrad to doing my master's um, in nine months at University of Washington in Seattle. Um, (laughs) So that that year, I basically didn't train at all. Um, That was my first break really from organized competitive sports since I was six when I started swimming competitively. Um, and I think I, I really needed it um, because I had just been doing sport for so long and never really got a break, especially with doing three sports all through college where it was fall, winter, spring seasons, back to back to back. Um, and I also had a few running injuries at the end of college that my body definitely needed that time to heal from. Um, but that year, I also found myself you know, putting all of that energy that went into sports, like that was taken and put all into academics to the point where I think that was a little bit, you know, too much energy and the balance really tipped. And um, so I just came out of that year feeling really unhealthy physically and mentally and burned out of school um, and really feeling the desire to get organized sport back in my life. Um, So when I moved to Boulder to start my PhD, um, I was looking at all the club sports teams um, because 
I wanted to compete again and thought it would be a good way to meet people um, just outside of my academic program. Um, so I remember looking at the club swim and club running teams, but I didn't really want to just swim or just run because like my entire life, I've always been doing multiple sports and it's just always been the way um, my body has functioned best and I felt the best. And so um, there was one day when I was swimming in the student rec center there and I saw all the banners of the CU tri team um, in the pool area. And they're like the seven time defending national champions and 17 titles overall. And I thought that sounded pretty cool. And that would be a pretty legit team to be a part of. Um, so I, I had some, um, I was a little bit nervous about juggling three sports um, alongside a PhD program. Um, but I ended up reaching out to a grad student who was on the team. And he reassured me that I could do it and that it would be a really good experience for me to join the team. And he actually ended up helping me find my first TT bike on Craigslist. Um, so I got the TT bike and then joined the team. And that's how I got into triathlon. And I, I think you eventually left your PhD program to do triathlon full time. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so going back to um, when I mentioned the feelings of burnout after my master's program, I think when I moved to Boulder, um, that was already really taking hold. And so when I started my PhD, um, it's like I was already kind of ready to be done with school. Um, and then once I got, so I originally went there for actually applied math. Um, and when I got there, I just was having trouble finding my niche in the program. So I spent a year kind of um, going back and forth between different advisors. I eventually transitioned to the mechanical engineering program, like Alyssa said. So that's where I was when I decided to leave. Um, and I, so this would have been the summer of 2017 at this point. Um, I thought I had found a really great advisor and I was doing some research and really enjoying myself. Um, but then the school year started and um, it became evident that my advisor is just expecting way too much of me. Um, so in addition to my own coursework and research, he was teaching a graduate level class that I was the TA for. And I was like expected to write all the homework assignments, the exams, grade everything, um, hold office hours, cover class when he wasn't able to make it. And sounds all... like a nice job to be that <laughs> professor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This is something that's, it's really all too common in PhD programs. And it's really unfortunate. Um, there, there's a reason that a lot of grad students suffer mental health issues. And it's, it's because a lot of them are so overworked. And they're working with professors who really just care about research output and not really about them as humans. Um, so I found myself in this situation where my mental health was suffering so much and I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, and at, at this point I had done collegiate nationals a couple months prior. I had qualified for my elite license. I was loving triathlon and I felt like I had found this new passion and school just wasn't doing it for me anymore. And so um, I'm, I'm a very risk averse person in general, but taking the plunge and deciding to leave school was probably the riskiest thing I've ever done. Um, 
but to this day, I still have no regrets. So. And so, you know, I definitely don't want to put like words in your mouth about this time either, but I did read a blog post where you wrote that you were struggling with depression and anxiety during this time and just really trying to navigate yourself back to like a better mental place. Right. So Mm -hmm. do you, and I think this is like really common for triathletes. Like we interview people and, you know, sometimes it's like mind blowing how overachieving (laughs) many of you are, you know? And I think we sometimes like just are used to everyone in our peer group being that way. It almost seems normal, right. To us to like look at each other and know everyone's trying to do it all. So did you, did you have support in a, like friends or family or, you know, were you working with a therapist to help you like navigate yourself through this time? Like, do you have tips for people on how they can kind of recenter during all of this time? And it sounds like you were able to get yourself on a track where like your mental health was a priority and it wasn't a good spot again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd say for me, the biggest thing was like, acknowledging that I did not need a PhD um, like for my self-worth as a person. I come from a super high-achieving family and I almost felt like it was just expected of me to go to grad school and get a higher degree because everyone in my family has higher degrees and whether or not that was actually the case or not, that's how I always felt growing up. Um, So just leaving school and getting that pressure off me was a huge first step. Um, As far as family goes, um, my dad actually was in a similar situation um, earlier in his life where he was in medical school and he was trying to run semi-professionally and he ended up leaving after two years because med school was taking over his life. um, And he just didn't want that and wanted to put more time and energy into running and other pursuits. Um, So he ended up leaving school, actually, just like I did. And so um, he like, even if he thought that maybe um, I was making a knee jerk reaction, like he, he, I don't want to say he like wanted to talk, talk me out of it, but definitely cautioned me to, you know, take some time with the decision process. despite that, like he knew where I was coming from. And it was it was good to know that. Um, And then the final thing was just getting myself out of Boulder, which I think a lot of people would question why I left Boulder. But there's just, you know, a lot of bad memories associated with that place for me, personally, like, I love training there, like the trails, the roads, everything was great. And I totally understand why like triathlon is such a huge thing there but for me I needed to get myself out of that environment and put myself somewhere else where I could kind of start over with a clean slate Um, and for me that was eventually moving to the east coast um, and joining my current squad. Yeah so tell us about this current squad it's the James Peterson is your coach Mm -hmm. and is JP Elite as you mentioned based in New Hampshire So how did you find this squad and decide that New Hampshire was the place for you? Uh, So it's a little bit of a funny story. Um, So James, my coach, um, had originally friended me on Facebook. Um, 
I think sometime in 2017 when I was still in school and had, you know, full intention of going through with the PhD. Um, and the only reason I accepted his friend re- friend request is because I went on his profile and it said that he was the USA Triathlon Collegiate Chair. So I thought, okay, this this guy sounds pretty legit. Like he's not a creeper. Um, <laughs> so I ended up accepting the friend request and then saw that he was putting out ads for a summer daily training environment um, in, so it would be June and July, 2018 in Ipswich, Massachusetts, um, which was his original daily training environment, um, just a two month camp. Um, And so when I ended up quitting school, I had remembered that he was putting out those ads and I just knew at this point that I wanted to pursue triathlon professionally and take it more seriously. Like I really didn't know what to look for in a coach or a training environment, but a logical first step to me seemed like, you know, joining a group would be a good thing. Um, cause I'd have, you know, like-minded people to train with. Um, so that's how I ended up making the decision to apply to James's team um, and I ended up getting the last slot into the DTE. Um, so in June 2018, I packed up everything I owned, and my dad helped drive me out to uh, Massachusetts. And so that DTE, the daily training environment, is pretty unique. Like, we definitely see squads that exist. Mm-hmm. Often it's, like, a couple weeks at a time. You know, there's there's a few maybe in Europe I can think of that are kind of longer, similar situations. But U.S.-based, you know, I think a lot of people happen to live in Boulder, so it appears that way, right? But I do think it's a, it's a pretty kind of unique environment for you to get to be in. So tell us more about, like, how the squad works in that two-month time. Then do you get a break and then you do another two months? Like, is there kind of a rotation of DTEs through the year? Does it just kind of match up with like a normal season ebb and flow? Yeah. um, So first of all, yeah, it is a pretty unique thing, especially in the U.S. There's only, I'd say, three or four uh, full-time daily training environments right now. Um, So in that regard, it is definitely uh, unique. And we're actually full time right now. So um, that original camp that I was a part of was just like a two month like initial thing to get it started. Um, But in 2019, um, so starting from I think April of 2019, we moved up to New Hampshire. So we're based out of Bedford, which is just outside of Manchester. Um, And we're there from May through November, December every year. Um, And then we part ways over the holidays. Um, So from this year, it was mid November to mid January, Um, we all just went home. Um, So that gives everyone some time to, you know, rest and recharge over the holidays and be with family. Um, And then since New England is cold and snowy over the winters, um, we started coming down to Claremont um, from January 15th through March 15th. And then last year, for the first time, um, we added another stop in Virginia, which is kind of a middle ground. So it's not too hot, not too cold in April. Um, So that's been fun going to like getting to know another place. Last year, it was Richmond. This year, it'll be Charlottesville, which I'm super excited for. It's near the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, 
should be lots of good climbing out there. Um, but yeah, we're based in Bedford for basically six months out of the year, um, which is it's also unique for a squad to have a home base like that for that long, um, which I'm really appreciative of because I'm a homebody and I actually don't like moving around a ton. So being able to be a part of a daily training environment that does stay in the same place for the majority of the year is a huge perk for me. And who's on the squad or how many people, I think you're our first guest who has been part of this, the JP mm -hmm. elite. And I mean, do you live together? Or are you eating together? What, what is that like? Is there an MTV reality show? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so right now, like our situation in Florida probably could be on a reality show because we are, <laughs> we are all living in the same house, my coach and his wife included. Um, and they so they have two cats who both hate each other and I have a cat and all three cats have to be separated because his cats would like want to attack my cat. <laughs> and so the cats all have to be let out into the common area on rotation. Um, and I know it probably drives my coach insane to live with us for, you know, a couple months every year because he can never get away from the athletes, but he does it because it cuts down costs for all of us. And so, I mean, we have to be pretty appreciative that he's willing to do that and that his wife, Vanessa, um, who is actually an assistant coach for the team is also willing to do that. Um, so as far as people on the squad, um, we have typically around eight people. Um, I think James always says we could probably handle 10 to 12. Um, it is hard to get people out here to commit full time. Like, I mean, it's, it's a huge commitment, so that's understandable. Um, and it's always kind of a revolving door is, you know, people come in and then leave because they decide they want to work or, you know, don't want to take the sport as seriously any more other things come up. Um, so we've had a lot of turnover in personnel over the past few years. And I'm actually the only one who has made it through from that very beginning camp in 2018. Um, so it, it's been really fun to see how the squad has evolved over the past few years and just gotten better and better. Because it's not an easy thing to build a DTE from the ground up. And just like seeing the amount of sacrifice and work that James has put into that is pretty crazy. Um, and I'm, you know, super appreciative of everything he's done. So Allie, you wrote that before you joined JP Elite on that squad, you were used to training like 10 to 13 hours a week. And then after joining the squad that time, actually training time doubled for you. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about like what that experience, I mean, that's a big shift probably in a shorter amount of time. So kind of what did that process look like from, you know, your viewpoint? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me at first was just getting rid of this mental block that I couldn't handle high volume because um, my entire life running, um, I really didn't run more than 15 or 20 miles a week, like all through high school. And then in college, I struggled with higher mileage as well. Um, so my mileage was never super high. And then I had a pretty low volume um, swim program in college as well, where we did more intensity um, than volume. And I also was a 100 breaststroker and 200 IMer. So I, I wasn't swimming distance events. 
Um, so I did need that higher intensity stuff um, that, you know, as triathletes, like you're not really doing because I mean, you, you do sometimes, but the distance freestyle thing was completely new for me. Um, so just getting rid of that mental block that I could actually do high volume and not totally break down was the first thing. Um, and James, my coach has been, you know, really good at building anyone new up gradually from whatever volume they were doing when they joined him. So this was a process that happened over months. Um, so it was a nice slow build and that has, you know, continued to happen over the past few years as we're continuing to build, especially now with, um, doing 70.3 instead of ITU. And earlier, Ali, you mentioned cost and jobs. And I was curious, is that, are you not allowed to have a job while you're part of JP elite? Um, I'd say, you know, ideally when you're in a daily training environment, if you're going to work, uh, the best option is remote jobs. Um, so that you're super flexible and, you know, hopefully it can all be um, worked around training sessions um, because here the first priority has to be triathlon. Um, it can't be work. You know, like you, you don't want to be missing sessions all the time. So there are people here with remote jobs. Um, actually, um, my boyfriend who's on the squad works for the Magic Five and he got a couple of my other teammates working for the magic five. So I, I think like half of the magic five customer service team is on our squad currently, which is kind of funny. Um, Those are but... magic five <laughs> goggles, right? We'll put a little yes. plug in for <laughs> team sponsor ish team sponsor with work <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with specific, specific requirements, but okay. So, so some people do have mm-hmm. other means of income besides triathlon, obviously. Yes. And Ali, you mentioned earlier that you had some like running injuries through college, I think. Right. And I'm not sure if it was the same injury that resurfaced or a new one that resurfaced in 2019 with your foot. Um, But like, you know, you had this, I want to like make sure I, I put this across, I guess the right way of, so like this change from leaving your PhD program to focusing on triathlon brought like such a good change. Obviously you were, sounds like really enjoying it, you know, thriving in that environment, but it did bring some of these like trials with it too. Right. So it still Mm -hmm. wasn't like all sunshine and rainbows. You did have a, a foot injury, I think in 2019, 2020, as we know, was the pandemic. So like nothing in our control, right. 2021, again, you found yourself again with the broken foot. So I'm curious because like, you know, you reflect on this in one of your blog posts and you talk about how, especially with the foot, it was kind of like this waterfall of issues, just kind of compounding. And that was like in the end what it was, but really there was a lot going on. Right. And you said, you use the term like burning the candle at both ends. So I'm wondering if you were frustrated to kind of find yourself in a similar situation again, like at that point you had left academia to try not to be burning the candle at both ends. Right. And so here you are again with these issues, but it sounds like, I mean, now we know that once again, you're thriving, right? So what was it like in the middle of those trials again? Like when you just wanted things to be moving in the right direction and you continue to find these roadblocks. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so this is kind of a long story. Um, so bear with me. That's what um, podcasts are good for. <laughs> yeah. Um, so back in college, I did have multiple metatarsal stress fractures in my left foot. Um, and I wasn't running super high mileage. So at, at that point, I'd say I, I would attribute those more to the fact that I was um, well, looking back on it. Now I know I was dumb because I didn't run the entire winter when I was swimming. Um, so my body just wasn't used to the impact when I started running again. And I would definitely try to get back into running way too quickly so I could race um, after swim season. Um, so I think that was more of a, you know, too much too soon type thing. And I just I wasn't used to the impact after swim season. Um, so those were the injuries I dealt with in college. And then I went a few years being totally injury-free when I started the sport. Um, I was running super low mileage. Um, and then when I joined James, um, the first winter I was on the team, um, so there were a lot of factors that I think went into this injury in 2019. Um, we did increase my run mileage past what I've ever done um, before. Um, at that time, there was a gap between that first two-month camp and the full-time DTE. So because I had moved everything out to New England, um, I didn't have an easy way of getting home. And one of my teammates, um, fam his whole family took me in for eight months. Um, so I lived with them in Connecticut, and I was working um, probably 30 to 40 hours a week at his dad's business as a way to support myself. And that just ended up being way too much for me. Um, I wasn't getting enough sleep. I was getting sick more often. Um, I was also dealing with some amenorrhea at that time. So I hadn't had my period for a few months. I just think everything I was doing along with all the life changes I had been through that year was just, you know, too much. Um, and then on top of that, we did increase my run volume. Um, so I ended up with another metatarsal stress fracture in my left foot in um, winter of 2019. So that was the injury that restarted this cycle that had kind of already started in college. Um, so it was, you know, really um, hard to have had some initial success in 2018 as a pro. And then it's like, right as I'm finally starting to develop and get stronger um, I'm hit with this injury that just, you know, cycled and it went misdiagnosed and, you know, we didn't really know what was going on. And I, I basically ended up missing all of 2019. Um, I raced twice. I did two IT races, both unknowingly with that stress fracture. Um, and then, you know, end of 2019 was when I got the MRI that, um, I like MRIs are super sensitive. So maybe it picked up on some stuff that wasn't actually there. But I just remember getting the results back. And it was like, you have bone stress injuries in all at least seven different bones in your foot. And I was like, my career is over. <laughs> um, like it was a, a very um, jarring MRI result to get back. Um, and really the the thing it that is so bad when we get it before our doc, like nowadays yeah. it goes to the, <laughs> to the portal and you can read it and you're like, Google, like, what does this mean? But that's like pretty obvious, but it is very jarring when you read it without like, it should be a lesson to us all right to like read first with a doctor around too. Yeah. So 
I, I think what was going on is um, we were seeing it, the injury from earlier that year along with the injury that I got later that fall. So I had a fifth metatarsal stress fracture early in 2019, a second metatarsal stress fracture in the fall of 2019, and then some other stuff that was going on probably, you know, because like I had so many issues, like it's like a chain reaction where everything was just bouncing back and forth between different bones and breaking down. Um, and the, the one thing that kept me going was when I couldn't run most of that year, um, we hit the swim and bike super hard and just did everything I possibly could to become a better athlete while I wasn't able to run. Um, so I was doing pretty high swim and bike volume. Um, and as you guys know, it's really hard to improve more than one sport at once. And so taking out the run really helped my swim and bike get pushed forward. Um, so I started putting up power numbers um, that was just, you know, far and beyond um, above what I had ever done before. And we started thinking like, I mean, I might have a future in long course where the bike is so much more important. Um, and that was part of my rationale for eventually jumping to long course because um, I had proved that the bike is one of my strengths. And because of the injuries, like I was getting to the point where because my bike was so strong, maybe I could get in a breakaway in a Continental Cup, um, like in a draft legal ITU race. Um but if it were the type of race where it all came together on the bike and I couldn't get away, I just simply did not have the speed and ability on the run um, because I just lost so much time um, and so much strength like through all the injuries. Um, so being able to see that progress in the other sports was huge um, and kept me going. Um, luckily, I did make it through most of 2020 uninjured. Um, Obviously, I missed like all of the opportunities to race that year because of COVID, which was a huge bummer coming back from a year in which I had already missed everything and then having that all taken away from me again. Um, one thing my coach did that year was um, he actually staged a 70.3 time trial um, with a half distance swim, half distance bike, and then a 10K run on the old Timberman course. Um, in New Hampshire. So that was super cool and gave me, you know, once I was able to go actually put in a race effort on that course and then look at my bike split and compare that to bike splits that had been done in the past, like having that knowledge in my back pocket was also something that kept me going when I did get injured again a few months after that. Um, so when I got the news of the injury um, in January 2021. So basically a year ago, um, that was kind of the final straw for me where I like I just hadn't been able to put together a race. Um, I felt like I was burning through all of my finances and I hadn't been able to show like that um, I belong in this sport or that I can really do anything in this sport. Um, so I really felt like my back was against the wall and this was the final straw where I had to put somehow put that injury in the past and then prove to myself that I belong here. Um, like once I healed from that injury, 
Um, so after that, we took a deep, me and James, my coach took a deep dive, um, like into physical therapy and biomechanics to do everything we could to get to the bottom of this injury, because, you know, all of these injuries are metatarsal stress fractures in my left foot. So something is going on. Um, and we hadn't been able to solve the issue up to that point. And so we just put this extra emphasis on really trying to get to the bottom of that once and for all. So I could, you know, give everything a proper shot in 2021 when I finally, finally returned to racing. Um, so through that process, um, we learned about some biomechanical factors that had been contributing to my injuries. Um, first and foremost, um, I tend to supinate on my left side, which means that I push off the outside of my foot. Um, so all the stress is getting put on my smaller metatarsals when really you want to be pushing off your big toe because your big toe is meant to take that stress. And then additionally, um, I have pretty limited range of motion in the dorsiflexion of my ankle. Um, and if that gets locked up, that means that additional stress is getting placed on my foot in areas where I really don't want it to be. So it's like both of those factors came together um, to make me a lot more injury prone um, in that particular foot where I actually strike um, and push off the ground a lot differently than I do on my right side. Um, so it was very illuminating to find out all that stuff and then take steps, whether that be through some temporary custom orthotics or strengthening ex exercises and, you know, everything that we could possibly do to prevent that from happening in the future. It does seem like those changes worked. I mean, you had a great 2021. You, uh, I think you, you had four top five finishes, the podiums at the New York City Triathlon, Memphis, Indian Wells. How, um, you know, are you, you posted about going back to that physical therapist and you had a lot of anxiety going into that appointment. Um, and I think you were actually surprised to learn that your foot had some structural improvements. So, I mean, I, I know we have listeners who are working through injury right now and they are in the thick of it. And do you have any advice for them on like doing the right thing, having a long-term approach and coming out of it better than you were in the first place when you come out the other side? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just not losing sight of your goals um, through that time. And I mean, I will say like having James as my coach who has always believed in me and, you know, maybe believed in me more than I believe in myself um, has been huge um, in getting through this. So just surrounding yourself with the right people who will continue to lift you up and invest in you and also, you know, see you as more than just an athlete. Um, but also the big thing for me personally was focusing on what I could do rather than what I couldn't. So like I said, um, that meant focusing completely on swim and bike when I couldn't run and then focusing on doing all of these strengthening exercises or whatever else I could do to prevent the injury from happening again in the future. Um, I think the initial reaction when we get injured is, you know, to kind of take this victim mindset 
and say, why is this happening? And think of all the things that we can't do. But if you're able to flip that switch in your head and instead start thinking of all the things that we can do, which in triathlon, we're very fortunate that a lot of times an injury won't take us out of all three sports simultaneously. Um, so just focusing on what you are able, what you are able to do in that time is huge. And you posted that your season approach will be changing this year from kind of racing a lot to targeting fewer, more specific races that you're really going to peak for. You mentioned the first one might be May. Can you share what you're kind of eyeing for the season in 2022? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still, everything's still very much up in the air um, for May. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about opening with a non-draft Olympic instead of a 70.3. So that could be St. Anthony's or the LA try. Um, And then of course in May um, there's Chattanooga, which is the North American championships. And then there's a smaller race happening, uh, the White Lake half that's PTO compliant. So I'm also considering that. Um, I'd say the one race that I really want to do this year um, outside of 70.3 worlds that is on my uh, calendar for sure is Mont Tremblant. Um, in June. I'm really hoping that we can get into Canada because I've always wanted to do that race. It looks gorgeous and I love hilly bike courses. Um, so that's a plus. Um, but yeah, the, the main focus this year will be on 70.3 worlds. And I, you know, I learned last year that I probably raced a little bit too much. And by the time I got to October, November, December, like mentally, I kind of felt like I was just trudging along through all those races. And because 70.3 worlds isn't till the end of October, I just want to make sure that I'm getting enough time in between races to, you know, recover and, you know, build myself back up and make sure I'm really mentally and physically ready for that race at the end of October. Well, Allie, Thank you so much for chatting with us. We we really loved learning more about you and we all will be following your season and, you know, best of luck as you build towards St. George in October. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code feisty for 20% off. Thanks to Allie for coming on and talking to us. Haley, I'm curious to know, how do you think you would do in a squad with a daily training environment? I think I'm too old. <laughs> I think I I think that now I would be like no I want to do it exactly whatever time I want to do it and so um I I don't know I mean there's probably a reason I haven't 
been invited to any daily training environments. <laughs> but how about you? I know. You know, I think it would be tough in the way like now things have evolved with coaching and, you know, like things are, I feel like priorities have shifted a little bit more as I've been racing longer. Right. So, but there was definitely a time where I would have loved something like that. I mean, I loved like college dorm life um, and just like, you know, the concept of like eight people all picked to live in the same house. What's that? Did you ever watch the real world? I didn't. But I get the, I get the, <laughs> eight strangers from all over the country picked to live in the same house. So like that to me is like fascinating, right? When you bring all these people together for like one cause to do it. And so triathlon related, it's like even better, you know? So, um, I, I think it would be really fun, but I also don't know if I could do it like for a long time. I think maybe a season would be, um, you know, it sounds like they do it pretty much until the holidays and then break for the holidays type of thing. So that's, that's intense. That's the real deal. Yeah. I, I mean, you probably can't have Ramona oh. and well, Allie has her cat with her, right? So yeah, I guess she does. But I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it'd be hard to do like those kind of things. And I feel like if you're in a relationship with someone who wasn't, um, you know, doing that, I think that would be really hard, but, um, you know, but I do think it does remind me of college and I did really, really enjoy college swimming. And so I guess that, you know, I have had that experience a little bit, but, um, I know my income is just these days. I would they, what would happen if we had to like do an interview? What would happen if you had to go into your coach and say, I'm going to Barkley? I know. (laughs) But I'd be on a different training plan, I think. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. But uh, I know. <laughs> anyway, Alyssa, on that note, um, I am uh, just, again, wishing you the best of luck. Hope you represent New Hampshire and the Iron Woman podcast and all of us triathletes. I mean, are you? Th- oh, I guess John Kelly is a triathlete. But the yeah. first like pro triathlete. Wait, no, did he ra- he did race pro. He raced one thing pro. I think he did. I think he, he maybe raced pro though after he finished Barkley, right? Yeah, maybe? I think you're right. I think I'm trying to figure that out because I'm like, yeah. okay, so you're not the first triathlete, but like you're one of a few. You'll represent us well. You're still our representative. We claim you. <laughs> so have so much fun. I can't wait to hear all about it. Thanks, Haley. I'll tell you all about it next week. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Feisty Media and is edited and produced by Lindsay Glassford. Head to livefeisty.com to find more podcasts, events, stories, and fresh perspectives. Thank you to our sponsors, Noon Hydration, Zelio Skincare, Orca Sportswear, and Inside Tracker. You can find all websites and discount codes at ironwomenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.